up uh, to your word. Open us up to your spirit. Uh, Use the teaching of your word to increase the joy, the peace, the comfort, the hope that we have because Jesus is risen from the dead. Lord, help me to teach it. Give the hearers discernment to weigh everything and to hold on to what is good. For the blessing of all and for your glory, we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, Jesus said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the meaning of that metaphor is crystal clear. Uh, Just as food nourishes us physically, the Bible nourishes us spiritually. And the words that God has spoken to us are intended to, they're designed to nourish the soul. You know, I, I now have a dietitian. Can you believe it? I never thought I would have a dietitian. I always thought you had to be rich to have a dietitian. You just have to be old and sick, and one will be assigned to you. You know, they'll, they'll give you one. And she, she talks to me whenever I have to see her as to about increasing the caloric density of my meals. We need to increase the caloric density of what you eat. And she talks to me about, and she, and she scolds me about, she scolds me. This is like a, you, you say, you, you, you're gonna, when I tell you this, you're going to say, you live in a dream world. She scolds me about losing weight. Not about not losing weight, but about losing weight. <laughs> and she says, you, you've got to, you've got to pour on those calories. You've got to. You got to you got to eat more. You got to get or at least if you're not eating more, you have to increase the increase the uh, the caloric power of it. Uh, so, you know, I've got some fancy ice cream bars down in the church freezer downstairs. It says it has a sticker on it says for Pastor Chris by doctor's orders. I had <laughs> I had a nice big bowl of ice cream the other night. Told Robin I'll be up as soon as I finish the, my medicine, and she said your medicine. I said yes. Yes. <clears throat> so I'm your dietitian. I'm your dietitian when they're talking about the nourishment of the word, and I, and I'm telling you that uh, to increase your caloric intake, increase it. You've got to keep up your spiritual gravitas. You don't want to waste away, and you can't do it without keeping up your uh, biblical caloric intake. So, so I'm your dietitian, and on Sundays I'm also the cook. But I, but I have to warn you that you can no better get all the spiritual nourishment you need for the week by listening to a sermon on Sundays than you can get all the calories you need, all the nutrition you need uh, for the week by eating a Sunday dinner, even if it's an Easter Sunday dinner. Um, but as the cook, I, I believe in fresh-made meals. I believe in home cooking. You know, I believe in fresh ingredients. I don't believe in leftovers. Uh, the, the recipe, so the recipe might be familiar. You know, a cook is a cook, and they use the kind of use the same things, and you hear some things over again. But I try to bring you something, even though that's the case. I try to bring you something fresh out of the oven every time. I. I don't feel right about grabbing something from the files that I preached, sermon I gave 10 or 20 years ago. Now, I've unintentionally written the same sermon, again, that I look in the files. I basically wrote that same thing 10 years ago. But 
but that's because I think in the same kind of patterns like you do. You know, we all have the, the ways that we, we think and all. But I, I've not, even that when that happened, it was home cooking just the same. You know, it's, it's at least it might be the same recipe, but it's fresh out of the oven. And, and I listen to a lot of sermons. But I don't think I'm guilty of preaching someone else's sermons. I certainly don't do that intentionally. So, oh, that's a good one. I'll write down that outline and do that, you know, warmed over. To me, canned spaghetti tastes like canned spaghetti, you know. It, it's, well, there's no comparison between what comes out of the Chef Boyardee can and what comes out of Mama's Kitchen, right? There's no comparison whatsoever. So I'm beginning this way because I have preached something close to 30 Resurrection Sunday sermons to the, in this church. And I, and I take it, I take it as an absolute duty, Christian duty, gospel duty to preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, you know, I feel like if I were to come up here on this day and talk to you about how to grow in Christ or or how the church should work, or how to overcome temptation, or any of those other meals that we need, you know what? The stones would cry out. (laughs) The stones would cry out. And they would cry out, He's risen! He's risen indeed! He's risen from the dead, and He is Lord. So woe, like Paul says about the gospel, woe to me if I do not preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the Sunday following Good Friday. (laughs) So what can I say about the resurrection of Jesus that I haven't said? I've got to be sermoned out on the resurrection. But no way. No way. Over the course of the week, really even before that, but really over the course of the week, I pray for me. I pray for you, I pray for this church, I pray for any visitors we may have on that particular Sunday, today, and I put my fingers to the keyboard and see what happens. And this week, the Lord, if we can say that he answered my prayers this week, he turned me into a Baptist. Because what came out was a three-point alliterated sermon, which is so not like me. (laughs) Three, but here it is, three crucial insights into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the first has to do with the premise of the resurrection. The premise of the resurrection. And here's what I mean by it. The, the Bible, let me ask you, is the Bible 66 books or is it one book? What's, the answer is yes, right? The answer is yes. It's 66 books, but it's also one book. And it isn't one book just because it's bound in a single cover. You know, there's 66 books bound in a single cover. It's more than that. You know, back in the dark ages, was I, when I was in high school, I don't know if they still do this. Oak, I went to Oak Ridge High School. 
but we had this for English literature class. We had this Norton anthology of English literature, the Norton anthology, and it was a big fat book as thick as and as thin page as any in the Bible, and it had it, it and it was had everything in it. It just it, samples of everything, from Beowulf to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales to William Shakespeare to John Donne, John Bunyan, a little excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Virginia Woolf. It's all in there. But it was a volume. It was a voluminous volume. You know, it was it, it's a huge thing, but it was not a book. It was not a book. It didn't tell a story. It didn't have a plot. It, it didn't have a turning point. It didn't have a climax. It didn't have a resolution. It didn't have a central character. It didn't have a central theme. But the Bible, though it is 66 books, is really one book. And not just as the cover, of course. It is one book. It tells one story. And, and it has a plot. And it has a growing conflict and a, and a, and a uh, turning point and a climax, and a resolution. And, and, you know, the Bible is is an absolutely unparalleled wonder and miracle of literature. And, and I, I think this, I think people who don't even believe the Bible, who don't believe what's in it, but it seems to me that people, even people who don't believe, should be able to see that. You look at that, and it tells a story. What what an absolute and how did that happen? What an absolute wonder that this book that grew and developed over the course of centuries, you know, over the course of almost a about fourteen hundred years, you know, this book grew and had additions to it, you know, other generations added to it, written in three different languages, which in the languages reflect some. Uh, uh, characteristic backgrounds of those languages. You know, we not only speak in a certain language, we think in a certain language, and they all and it has their own ways of thinking. And you got three languages: Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic. Written by over forty different authors. Forty different authors who lived at different times and with it from a great variety of backgrounds, and some of whom. And not only that, some of whom wrote history, and some of whom wrote poetry, and some who were prophets who wrote their recorded their prophetic visions, and some of whom wrote letters. Think of the New Testament, mail, letters from someone to someone else. And what a wonder that this thing all comes together to tell one story. And besides that central story. And besides that central character, this tapestry of other themes, sub-themes, subplots, this tapestry of themes, subplots, it, it, it comes together into this single, intricate, beautiful work with a beginning and a problem and a plot and a growing conflict and a turning point and a climax, and a resolution. How did that happen? Well, we think we know how it happened. It happened because there's a single divine author 
behind all the human authors, and he knew where the story was going before the first page was written. And in fact, that's the testimony of the Bible about itself. All Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, the human authors wrote, but the, but the Holy Spirit is the wind in their sails that pushes them along to where the, the divine author wants it to go. And those, so they wrote, and everything they wrote, the human authors, it fit into this broad tapestry of the biblical story. And the basic plot of this book, the whole thing, the basic plot is set in the first few chapters of Genesis. Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Actually, that's not quite the plot. It's the foreshadowing of the plot. The plot proper comes when the man and the woman, they do just that. They disobey God and eat, and they bring on themselves and all creation and all their descendants the curse of sin and death. Now, if you were to read what I just read to you, Genesis chapter 2, where the Lord God warns them, don't eat that, don't eat from that tree, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you read that in the first ten pages of a thousand-page novel like this, you, you've read a novel or two before, you would know he's going to do it. <laughs> you know he's going to do it. Why is it even in there if he's not going to do it? You know he's going to do it, and you don't have to wait long. You'd absolutely know that this Adam character is going to do it. And so there's the conflict. There's the plot. And there's the problem that the hero of this novel, and don't mistake, I'm not saying it's a novel, I'm not saying we all wouldn't be here today if we thought it was just a novel. But that's the conflict and the problem that the hero of this story is going to solve. It's the problem of death. And so who is the hero of the grand story of the Bible? It's Jesus, of course. He comes as the promised Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He proves himself to be Messiah by doing the works of Messiah, by doing what the Old Testament says Messiah would do when he comes. And he proves it by, well, how does he do that? He removes the effects of sin from people's lives. Right? Do you remember when he said, when he said, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise up and walk. So that you'll know. He removes the effects of, of sin, and he even, even to the point of raising some to life again, right? Raising up people who have died. The wages of sin is death. Jesus removes the wages of sin, and they live. But then, it's about, it's about this far through. But then the one comes, and the one we, the, the expected hero who proves himself to hero the Passion Week comes, and what? Oh, no. The one who was to overcome death, the one who was to rescue us from sin and death, has himself died. 
you know, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, I think, I, when did I quote this, last week or, or maybe Good Friday, the disciples on the road to Emmaus after resurrection, talking to the resurrected Jesus, they don't realize it's him yet. And they say, we had hoped he was the one. But he's dead. But just when, and how many books have you read like this? How many movies have you seen like this? Just when his closest followers thought all was lost today. He's risen from the dead. You know, this is the part of the story where the hero emerges from the wreckage. You know what I mean? The hero, the the car crashes or the plane crashes and all is lost, his big fire, and then he comes walking out of the smoke. And the people in the theater cheer, yay! The angel says to the, here, here it is. Here's that moment in the, in the Bible story, in the biblical story. That moment is when the women go to the tomb and the angels say, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And you, when you, if you look at it like that, like this is, like this is God's story. You knew it was coming. You had to know this was coming. If the whole conflict is that man in creation has fallen under the tyranny of sin and death, what can deliverance be other than a rescuer who takes upon himself the sin and overcomes death straight on? You know what? There's no story without it. There's no story without it. It's it's the only way it could have turned out if there was to be any deliverance, if there's to be any happy ending, if there's any going to be any real resolution. You know, God is an author. He's an author. He is not, however, a Russian existentialist who writes long novels about the futility of life and the emptiness and everything and the meaninglessness of everything. Except, which is what they do. You know, the Russian existentialist, Dostoevsky, you know, and those. If a Russian existentialist would write, men are sinners and we're all doomed, the end. Except they'd take a thousand pages to do it. His story, God's story, is one of triumph, is one of victory, is one of deliverance. You know what it is? It's good news. Good news. And the premise of the resurrection is that man is fallen under the curse of sin and death, and yet, at the same time, God is good, God is merciful, He's full of grace, and He loves us, And the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is how those two truths come together. That's how they fit together. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if if anyone doesn't get that, they have no idea what the resurrection is about, what it means, what it did. Here's what Google says the bottom line is. The low growth. What do you got to know about Easter? What do you got to know about it? Here's the low gravy. Boil it out, dull it down, low gravy. Uh, 
uh, Google puts it in one sentence. It's the most important and oldest festival of the Christian church celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and held between March 21st and April 25th on the first Sunday after the first full moon following the northern spring equinox. If that's what you know about it, you don't know anything. You don't know what you need to know. I, I got to tell you, just last night, I read a, I read a, uh, a tweet by uh, NPR, uh, NPR, National Public Radio, is that right? NPR. It was a correction of an earlier tweet. It said, an earlier version of this post, I don't know if I can remember it, but it said, an earlier version of this post identified Easter identified Easter as the celebration of the idea that Jesus did not die or go to hell or go to purgatory, but rose, but rose directly into heaven. Almost all of that is wrong, right? <laughs> that he did not die? Of course he died. Or that he rose into heaven? Well, that's the ascension. That's 50 days from now. You know, that, that, that's the ascension. So resurrection Sunday, of course, is this most important holiday, but it's because it marks the turning point of salvation history, which is God's grand effort to save mankind from sin and death. That's what it is. There's no, this book makes no sense without it. And if you just read it as a book, you know it's coming. And it did. It's critical to understand that. Here's the second crucial insight, and it has to do, I said, the premise of the resurrection, the proofs of the resurrection. When I say proofs of the resurrection, I, I don't have in mind here uh, proofs that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened. I, you, most of you, I, I think, and, and I hope, could call to mind, really, without being prepped, some fairly good reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical fact. And that, and really, that's been some of the resurrection Sunday meals you've had in the past here. Reasons to believe it. You know, the evidence of the empty tomb, the, uh, the resurrection appearances of Christ by certainly otherwise reliable witnesses, uh, the changed lives of the disciples following their interactions with the risen Christ, the, the failure of Jesus' enemies to even try to produce a body, you know, the body of Jesus that would uh, give the lie to the whole thing if it were a fraud, the explosive growth of the, of the Christian faith uh, you know, at a time when there would be a lot of first hand witnesses about who could tell people yes i saw him i talked with him we touched him you know and ate with him and things like that so there's nothing that explains those things better than the actual physical bodily resurrection of jesus christ it's the simplest explanation he rose they saw him but i'm not thinking of proofs of the resurrection, I, I'm thinking of. I'm not thinking of what uh, what proves the resurrection as a historical fact. I'm thinking about what the resurrection proves. What the resurrection itself proves. It proves his claims about himself. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate proof that Jesus is God in human flesh, that He's God's Messiah, that He's Christ and Lord. Jesus said, "I and the Father are one." 
didn't he? He said, he he who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, the Bible also teaches that God is the giver of life. He's the author of life, and life is is a part of God's very nature. Uh, Jesus says of himself, John 5, he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, that means something more than he's just alive like you and I are. That means that life is intrinsic to his nature. And so Jesus is able to say, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Well, you and I kind of have half of that authority. We have authority to lay down our lives. And many people have for many reasons and many things and many causes and things like that. But that's the end of our authority, isn't it? We have no authority to take it up back up again. If we're going to be resurrected, we need help. <laughs> something has Somebody has to do something for us in us. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible... For him to be held by it, it being death. Why was it not possible for him to remain in the bonds of death? Because he's God. And God is life. His very nature is life. Is it impossible for humans, for regular folks like us, is it impossible for us to stay dead once we have died? No, of course not. It's the natural course of it. It's expected of us, isn't it? It's expected of us. And very few people have ever disappointed in that regard. Right? The Apostle Paul tells us, it's Romans 1, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. So the resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus is who he told us he is. He's God in human flesh. He's the Savior of all who will have him. And the resurrection proves it. Resurrection also proves his sacrifice was sufficient to save us from our sins. Romans 4 says, this New American Standard, I think it's clearer than the ESV. He was delivered up. Because of our transgressions, Jesus was delivered up to the cross. Because of our transgressions, he was raised up because of, same word, uh, because of our justification. The idea is that we sinned, therefore, Jesus was delivered up to the cross. We've been justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ. Because we've been declared righteous, therefore, Jesus is raised from the raised from the dead. So, you know, once here's the picture. Once a prisoner has paid his debt to society, what happens to him? 
He gets out. They let him go. He's free. Jesus has paid the price in full, and he got out. And that, and that connection is, the New Testament goes so far as to say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. But your faith is not worthless, because Jesus is risen from the dead. How do you, how do you know your sins are forgiven in Christ? How do you know you've been justified, declared righteous by God, though you know you're guilty? How do you know you've been declared righteous? Justifi- that's what justification is. How do you know you've been reconciled to God? How do you know all that? How do you know you're going to heaven? When you breathe your last in this, in this life, you, you, you'll be with Christ. You know, how do you know that? You know that because Jesus is risen from the dead. And so the resurrection... You know, also proves, third thing, that's the only thing, other thing I want to mention in this regard, it proves that Christianity is uniquely a relationship with a living Lord. We do not venerate the, the memory of the founder of our religion as do Muslims. We do not try to merely try to follow the example of the follower of our religion as we would if we were Buddhists follow trying to do what Buddha did rather to become a Christian is to enter into an actual relationship with a living person Jesus he says he says I am the vine you are the branches Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Well, no fruit can come from a dead vine. Fruit comes, and let's just say for now, what, what are we talking about? Fruit. Real results of Christian living. Because Christianity or, or a Christian faith is being connected to, energized by, empowered by a living Lord. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No strength can come from something dead. No strength can come from something that is not alive. He doesn't say, I can do all things through Christ who showed the, who was the example, my example. I can do all things through Christ who did it before me. So I can, if he can do it, I can do it. it through Christ who strengthens me. He has to be alive for that to happen. You can't jump one dead battery off another dead battery. It doesn't matter how many you string together. There's got to be a live battery in there. That's the source of it. So because Christ lives, you can, like Paul was saying when he says, I can do all things, I can be content when I don't have very much through Christ who strengthens me, and I can have a lot without no, without feeling like my sustenance is all in money or in the bank account or my possessions, through Christ who strengthens me. I can forgive 70 times 7 through Christ who strengthens me. I can love one another even when some of the others are not being very lovable. I can love one another through Christ who strengthens me. You can do all things through Christ. Why? Because he's alive. And you can be connected to him in relationship with him. 
So this the proof. It's crucial to understand that, isn't it? It isn't a relation. It isn't a religion about Jesus. It's a relationship with Jesus. So the proofs of the resurrection. The resurrection proves all of this. And thirdly and finally, it has to do with the promise of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that all who believe in him will also be raised just as he was in the same way. 1 Corinthians 15.20 calls Jesus in his resurrection the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, the first part of a much greater harvest to come. You plant your tomatoes in the spring and you, you get those first couple of tomatoes and they're precious to you. And like, wow, great. And, you know, but in a, in a while you'll be giving them away. You'll be... The great, it's bumper crop, right? You know what we're going to do with all these tomatoes? As a man, and they didn't come to church here, but someone who did work here is talking about his church in the country. He said, he said, the folks at my church are so honest, nobody even locks their cars at church except in squash season. <laughs> Leave your car and lock, there's going to be a basket of squash in the back seat. But the first fruits, the first Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, the first part of a, a really a much larger in scale event, right? The resurrection to come. Every soul connected by faith to Jesus, Jesus who has life in himself, is an intrinsic quality, will be raised just as Jesus was. The Bible says our citizenship is in heaven and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Can you believe that part yet? Our lowly body. (laughs) To be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to himself. What kind of body is that that he will tra- that ours will be transformed into? It's going to be the kind that is not subject to death ever. It's going to be the kind, not that we've ever seen this, that does not wear out, that does not give out. The kind that will never die. And what's even better than that, that's good enough. But what's even better than that is that we will experience this resurrection life and this resurrection event even together. Together. The Apostle Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, or brothers. There's another version leaking into me we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep and what's he talking about those who have died those who have died in the lord 
that you, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe, and listen to this sentence on this Resurrection Sunday, listen to this sentence. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What's it talking about? Reunion. Reunion. You know, I see, you know, today we have people here that we haven't seen for a while. You know, we, we, there, it is, there, you, you, there's kind of a reunion aspect. We've got people from out of town at our house today. You know, you, it's, it, you see this, re, and how, how fitting is that? How fitting is that? Because Jesus is risen from the dead, we will be resurrected like he will, and we'll do it with all who are in Christ. All who are in Christ. Not just people you haven't seen for a while who are here or who live on the earth, but people who have already gone. People who are with the Lord now. People who have already died. We grieve not as those who have no hope, but as those whose hearts are full of hope in the resurrection that is coming to them and to us. Knowing by faith that the voice we miss so much we'll hear again. That the laugh we remember we'll hear again. That the smile we miss so much we'll see again. That this person so distant from us because of death will be brought near again because all who believe have a share in that resurrection. We have a share in it. Jesus, just the first fruits, the greater harvest to come. We have an expectation of that for ourselves and all who are in Christ. And the day of reunion and the joy of reunion will be just as real as the day of grief, just as real as the day of parting, and just as real as the day when Jesus rose from the dead. So when, to, to sum up, you know, to, when God writes a story, as he has in the Bible, he doesn't just use pen and ink, he uses history itself. His story, well, let me say this, History, his story, is actually his story. I mean, it's just a uh, play on words, but it's true. History is his story. And so we not only read God's story like you can and should, it's food for you, but we are players in it. We're characters in the story. We're living in it. We, whether you want to be or not, you don't have to sign up for it. You don't have to try out for it. Whether you want to be in the story or not, you're in the story. You're in it. You were born into it. You were born into the plot. And what was the plot at the very beginning? We're under the sin of curse and, we're under the curse of sin and death. That's the plot. You don't have to try out for that play. You're in it. You live it. 
you're alive today for now, but you may you may be of an age where or it's just circumstances where you've already begun to make down payments on the death that is inevitable. It exacts from those things as we grow older. There's nothing we can do about it. But God, because he loved us, sent his son. It's not just in a book. It really happened. Sent his son to rescue us. He's the hero of the story. (laughs) To rescue us from sin and death. And we know he was really God's son because death wasn't able to hold him. And we know that his saving work is sufficient because he rose from the dead. And we know that we can know him now in a real relationship because he lives. And because he lives, so will you and I through faith in him, even if we die. And because he lives, a happy ending is coming. (laughs) There's a happy ending at the end here. But it's another sermon. There's a happy ending coming, and you're going to be in it. If you know Christ, if you let Him be your rescuer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Philippian jailer, Acts 16. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and your household receive the eternal, the gift of eternal life that he offers by placing your hope, your trust, your faith in the one who rescues us from the grave. He's God's Messiah. He's our Savior. He's our rescue. He's our hero. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in your resurrection, knowing that we are shares in it by your grace through faith. Increase our faith that we might live as those whose lives and identities and hopes and dreams are not confined to the narrow veil between the cradle and the grave, but as those who live, who will live and serve you throughout eternity and who are now for a short time in their time of testing and proving. Thank you for the certainty that is ours because Christ is risen from the dead. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you, not just knowing about you, but knowing you yourself. And thank you for the joy that is coming when the first fruits of the resurrection blossoms into a great harvest of resurrection, when the last enemy will have been defeated forever. Increase the faith of every believing soul in this place and let the beginnings of faith stir in anyone who remains outside of Christ that they might believe and be saved and that our joy would be made full in the name of Jesus. Amen.